are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com. Today's teaching text comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're going to get to that bit uh, that we just read, but I actually want to begin today approximately 72 hours prior to that, uh, on the final night of Jesus' life, when he said something that's even for the most mature, seasoned Christian, difficult to understand. Jesus said this, I'm going away, but that's going to make it so much better. John 14, 15, and 16 record this one conversation between Jesus and the 12, wedged right in between the Last Supper and Jesus' prayer and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cracks a wry smile across his face and says, look, my days with you are numbered, but I'm sending you my spirit, and that's even better. So for the record, according to Jesus, and he is remarkably clear about this, the Holy Spirit is a staggering improvement to a direct face-to-face conversation with God in the flesh. The indwelling presence of God trumps the person of God standing right in front of you every single time, and it is not close. That's what he said. Now, the interesting part about that to me is that we disagree, right? I mean, we don't buy it. I mean, I honestly want to ask you, show of hands, how many of you would trade in your current experience with the indwelling Spirit of God up to this point in your life for a face-to-face conversation with Jesus right now? Show of hands if you would take that trade. Yeah, it's basically all of us, right? Most of us, regardless of spiritual maturity or commitment or gifting or education, are a bit underwhelmed with the experience Jesus got so excited about on the final night of his life. The better plan that Jesus made so clear to his followers, we'd reverse it if we could. We could take it or leave it. So I want to talk to you today about the Holy Spirit. 
The biblical understanding is that there's a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we mostly get the Father, right? There's a God in heaven, and we're his children, and he relates to us like a parent. We mostly get the Son. That God came in the form of a human being and related to us and shared in our human experience, but the Spirit is like an urban legend. It's like, I've heard all the rumors, but has anyone actually seen the Yeti? And... The spirit is like that person in your friend group that you've hung out in the same room with a bunch of times, but you've never actually had a one-on-one conversation with, and so the two of you have sort of made a joint decision that we're just going to stay on either end of this thing, and then that one time you were out to dinner, and everyone had to go to the bathroom at the same time, except you and that person, and you were dying inside. (laughs) That, that is the Holy Spirit. So I want to introduce you to the person of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's in every scene of the biblical story. If you open the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you walk into room after room after room after room where the Spirit of God is present, and despite that, the tragic truth of the church in the modern West today is that the Holy Spirit has become a familiar stranger. Christianity Today did a survey uh, three years ago where they Asked, true or false, the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. These were the results. 51% of Christians in this country said true. 7% said I don't know, 42% said false. Over half of American Christians think the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is a force to be used, not a person to know and be known by. Have you ever heard that old gospel church saying, I caught the Holy Spirit? You know, I was in church today and it got going and I caught the Holy Spirit. You know, that has actually become the dominant understanding of the Spirit of God in our country. So I want to introduce you to the person of the Holy Spirit. Today is going to be a bit like trying to take a sip of water from a fire hose, to be quite honest. I'm, I'm going to give you way too much. There's no way you could take all of it in. That is totally fine. It is by design. I want to douse you in Jesus' imagination for what your life filled with his spirit would actually be like. This is a shove into the deep end, but we've got weeks to sort it out, so just relax. But here's the shove. The Holy Spirit a familiar stranger. I'm going to take you through the Old Testament, Jesus, the early church, and then us. The the sort of anchor for you to hold on to as we go through all of this is going to be the word tabernacle or temple because they're going to be used interchangeably in the way that I will show you. So let's begin in the Old Testament. I want to start in the story of the Exodus. Throughout the Exodus story, God is constantly being described as a cloud, a cloud that guides the Israelites through the desert toward the promised land, a cloud that descends on Mount Sinai when God speaks to Moses face to face, giving him the Ten Commandments, and then eventually, God instructs Moses to build a tabernacle. So if you've read the Exodus story, the whole first half is where all the action happens. Everything you've heard from Exodus, that's just the first half. The whole second half is instructions for the building of a tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is just the Old Testament word for tent, which sounds ridiculous, right? God asked Moses, build me a tent, and then gives chapter after chapter after chapter of instructions on how to do it. It sounds ridiculous that the Israelites would build God a tent so that he could go camping with them as they journey through the desert. 
But actually, this was a revolutionary conception of God. Every other conception of God that had existed in history up to this point had God tied down to a particular place. There's the sun god, the moon god, the god of the stars, the god of the sea, etc. This was the first time in human history that we have recorded anywhere anyone thinking that there was a god personal enough to travel with his people, stay with his people, live with his people, be with his people. So this was a revolutionary idea. It set Yahweh apart from every other verifiable conception of God up to this point. And to be fair, it was more glamping than camping because this was a really nice tent. It's made of acacia wood. There's multiple rooms. It's a very nice tent. So Exodus 40, the very final chapter of the story says this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Hold on to that. Let's fast forward just a bit in Israel's story. You come to 1 Kings chapter 8. At this point, Israel's settled. They're not nomadic anymore. And so Solomon wants to give a bit of upgrades to God's house. He adds guest rooms onto the tabernacle. He makes it more of a permanent home and sets it right at the town square in the very center of the city, a permanent house for a permanent people where God can continue to live among them. We read this in 1 Kings 8 at the conclusion of this building. It should sound familiar. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because, the cl- because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now this is the thematic story of the entire Old Testament when it comes to the Spirit of God. The tabernacle is good, but it's incomplete. It's good because God's presence is clearly among his people, and that is wildly progressive. No one is arguing whether God exists at this time in history. Where is God? He's the dense cloud, so present in the temple, no one can go in there without falling down. But it's incomplete because there's no intimacy. God's obviously present, but there's no intimacy with this God. In Moses' tabernacle, Moses could not go in because the presence of God was too powerful. And what about the rest of the people? We're told that when God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, if anyone even set foot at the base of the mountain, they would fall dead because the presence of God was that powerful. In Solomon's tabernacle, the priests couldn't perform their service because of the presence of God. Only the high priest could enter God's presence and only on Yom Kippur once a year to make atonement for the people. And even then, the Israelites would tie a rope to the ankle of the high priest just in case he dropped dead in the presence of God. There would be a way to retrieve the body. It's good but it's incomplete. The tabernacle is a story of presence without intimacy. Now that brings us to Jesus. The Gospel of John, which is where our teaching text is found, I'm getting there. We're just making a few stops along the way. Opens like this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this word dwelling is the ancient Greek word skenoo, which means tabernacle. The most direct translation of this verse is, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. This is a reference back to that Old Testament pattern. If you build a tabernacle, God fills it with his glory, his presence. John is saying in the opening chapter of his gospel, Jesus became a tabernacle, a bodily tabernacle 
tabernacle living among us and God filled his body with his living presence. The glory of God that filled the tabernacle has now filled the body of a human being. He is a walking, talking, living, breathing tabernacle among us. Now, this is a lot more than just a clever play on words. It is the basis through which we understand the very life of Jesus. Jesus goes around acting like he is a tabernacle. So one of the things that gets Jesus in so much trouble with the priests is that he does things you could not do outside of the temple. And I don't mean like he broke some manner, mannerisms or he messed up a few of the rituals. I mean he violated the Torah. So Jesus starts doing things that could only be done in the temple through the priest. One example, Jesus goes around just forgiving people. Wait, what? No, 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 no. That's not how it works. If someone needs grace, then they go through cleansing rituals, then they go to the temple, they offer the required sacrifices, and then the priest who's qualified to grant forgiveness grants them forgiveness. Where'd you get that? Oh, we got that from Moses, the one who built the tabernacle that we've modeled this building after and continue to meet in. This is the Torah. You can't just bypass the law. And then here's Jesus, no temple, no cleansing, no sacrifice, no priest. Oh, do you want to repent? Okay, you're forgiven. That's gonna be a problem for some people. In Luke's gospel, the first time Jesus enters the temple as an adult, here's what he does. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because... He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the, for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After that, the entire congregation tried to force him off a cliff. That's in the Bible. What? I've preached some bad sermons. You've lived through them. It's never gone that bad. What is so offensive here? Here's the problem. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Jesus is claiming to be the tabernacle. He's standing in the building they believe God dwells in and he's saying, no, no, no. I am the container for God's presence. I am the vessel filled with God's spirit. And that was a bit much, but to be fair, Jesus doesn't ask that they just blindly accept this. He lays out evidence. Do you want evidence? Here, let me directly quote from your own scriptures what it will be like when the Spirit of God fills up a person. It will be like this, priority toward the poor, freedom for the imprisoned, the healing of incurable conditions, and an outpouring of God's favor. Now just begin flipping to the right in the Bible. Here's what you'll find. Does Jesus proclaim good news to the poor? Yeah, all the time. He calls it the gospel. Do, does he offer freedom for the oppressed and the prisoner? Yes, constantly, right? He builds a movement on the oppressed. Does Jesus give blind, or does he give sight to the blind? Yep, 
literally and figuratively everywhere he goes, he's giving sight to the blind. And then eventually he makes this claim, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. Now Jesus said that standing on the foundation of the temple mount. He's standing on one of the architectural wonders of the world which has been being built for two generations and says destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And this is the last straw for the priests. They can't take it anymore. It's so absurd the claims this guy's making because they think he's talking about a building. Jesus' disciples, after his death, realized, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. He was talking about his body. He was talking about the living, breathing, walking, talking temple. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you're building a container for God's presence, so am I. I'm making you the container for God's presence. What I'll build in three days through my death and resurrection will far surpass, in fact, it will replace what you have spent two generations trying to build. Now, moving right along, this brings us to the early church. Here we are. We've made it to our teaching text. Now, maybe you noticed this, maybe you didn't, but the passage we read today picks up exactly where we left off last week. Last week, we read about Easter, the celebration of resurrection morning. This is how Jesus spent resurrection evening. Okay, this is Sunday night. He appears to his disciples, and we read this. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The message of resurrection evening from the lips of the resurrected one is this. The presence of God you've seen tabernacling in me, now I'm giving it to you. Just as the Father sent me into the world as a living, breathing, walking, talking tabernacle, now I'm sending you into the world as a living, breathing, walking, talking tabernacle. That's a lot more than just poetry, by the way, because notice what follows. The next thing Jesus says, you have no idea what to do with. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven, and if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus is talking to ordinary people like you and me, and he says, if you forgive someone's sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. Wait, what? That's in the Bible? Are you sure that's the Bible? That's the Bible. That is message number one from the lips of Jesus after his resurrection. So what on earth does that mean? Remember, what got Jesus into trouble? It's that he walked around doing things you could not do outside of the temple. And so what's Jesus saying to his followers? He's at least saying this. I'm now sending you out to do everything you've seen me doing. You don't need to be in a building to access my presence and my glory. I'm sending you out to carry everything you've watched me doing everywhere you go. At the very least, Jesus is saying, the presence and power you've seen in me, I now give to you, not as a comforting theory or a literary technique, but as actual practice for you to live out in your day in and day out life. And we 
flip over to the book of Acts, and what are those very disciples doing? A bunch of stuff you could not do outside of the temple. They're preaching, they're offering forgiveness, they're baptizing people, they're praying, and they're healing. They go around doing the very stuff Jesus did. Remember all that evidence that Jesus listed off of what it would be like when people get filled up with his presence? The Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news. And then these disciples go around preaching the gospel. The the church always has and always will preach the gospel, but they actually did even more than just preach the gospel because the evidence of the Holy Spirit also includes freedom, healing, and justice. And so in Acts, in addition to the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, we also read that they prayed in jail cells flung open. That that Peter, on his way to church, healed a 40-year-old paralytic who then stood up and danced at the front during the first worship song. That Paul once preached too long, which I can relate to, and then someone perched in a window fell out to their death two stories below. He went down and healed them before the benediction. Uh, that daily they served food to the oppressed and the vulnerable. And at the same time, all of that supernatural, miraculous stuff was happening. They also suffered and they grieved and they questioned and doubted their own faith. And they went through spells, sometimes long ones, of spiritual apathy. How? How can people be experiencing both of those things at the same time? Because this is a relationship with a person. It is not a box of magical powers. Because the church, led by the Holy Spirit, looks exactly like the continuation of everything Jesus did. And it looks like that in really ordinary, flawed people like me and you. And the rest of the Bible, if I were to sum it up in a sentence, is just a bunch of ordinary people tabernacling. It's a bunch of ordinary people filled up with the presence, the spirit, the breath of this extraordinary God, doing their best to stumble carrying the ministry of Jesus forward. That finally brings us to us. So the final stop on this whirlwind tour through the Bible is in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so I want to read you now from a letter which was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. The letter that I'm about to read you was written to a gathering of people exactly like this one, living in a community exactly like this one, in the middle of a major city exactly like this one. This is written to us. This is 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you, and that's the plural you in the Greek, by the way, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? There is still a tabernacle. There's still a place where God dwells. It's you. It's in you. It's not the building that we're in, but it's in the collective lives of Jesus' followers. As a community, we are bound together by the Holy Spirit. And when we come together, the glory of God fills the atmosphere just as it did in Moses' tent, just as it did in Solomon's tabernacle, just as it did in Jesus' body. But there's even more than that. Keep reading in the letter, you'll get to chapter six, which says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Now on a personal note, when I was a kid, my grandma used this to tell me not to smoke. She was way off. 
Now, it's probably good that at age 12, I wasn't smoking Newport 100s while waiting on the school bus, but still, she was way off. And I just want to go on record because she listens to this podcast, and this is the most passive-aggressive way for me to get back. So, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? That's singular in the Greek. Who is in you, whom you, singular, have received from God. So you, your individual physical body, is now a dwelling place for God through the Holy Spirit. You are filled with the very Spirit that filled Jesus, empowering everything that he did. Now to recap, here is the familiar stranger in the background of the entire Bible getting closer and closer and closer as the story moves forward. In the Old Testament, God fills Moses' tabernacle with his spirit, then fills Solomon's temple. God's spirit comes to live among his people in his city. God has never been this intimate before. In Jesus, God's spirit fills a single person whose whole life, death, and resurrection breaks down every barrier between us and God so that the church becomes a community of people bound together by God's spirit. And every time we gather, the person of God is in our midst. That's us. But there's even more than that. You, any one of you who accepts the offer of life by grace through Jesus, is then filled with God's spirit exactly as he was. That is the story of the whole Bible. And if I was to sum it up in a sentence, I would just say this. God's own spirit has been given to us and to you. Now that is so beautiful. But it's more than just poetry. It's actually practice. So let's go back to that night that I promised we'd eventually get back to, the last night of Jesus' life, when, when he gets a little bit giddy, anticipating what is to come, somewhere between his last supper and his arrest, Jesus says these words, very truly I tell you, now that's Jesus, for this is not hyperbole, I actually mean what I'm about to say. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Whoever believes in me will do the very works you've seen me doing by my very spirit. What has Jesus been doing? Preaching the gospel, serving the poor, healing the sick, freeing the addicted and the oppressed. You will do everything you've seen me doing and you'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. That's why this is even better than me staying with you. Now, there's so much debate, even among the most educated biblical scholars of what exactly did Jesus have in mind when he said the even greater things part. But we at least know this, that most scholars agree that he was talking about quantity, not quality. We at least know this, that when Jesus said, you'll do even greater things, he didn't mean less and not as good things. <laughs> He's talking about quantity, not quality. So, so here's the key line in the whole, in the whole phrase, whoever. Jesus has made all of us into tabernacles filled with the presence and the power of God doing the very things we've seen him doing. Who is that invitation for? Whoever. The power of God has been shared with whoever will receive it. Whoever believes in me, this is what you can expect from your life. Yeah, but what about? But what about? 
But what about, we'll get there. I promise we'll get there. But for a moment, would you just dream with me about this? About this invitation from Jesus. I mean, what if the biggest dreams God has for us as our life together as church isn't only that more people would fill this room and new community groups would pop up all over Brooklyn. And it definitely includes that, but what if it's more than just that? What if when God dreams about his church in our city, he also dreams about the addicted finding freedom? That in a neighborhood that has a long, long history of alcohol and drug abuse, a new reputation for emerging freedom could show up here? What if it also includes people who are obsessively distracted by their appearance and their, the success of their startup, finding that the deepest sense of love and value comes from another source, and so they're able to begin actually enjoying the work they set out to enjoy in the first place because it doesn't hold their worth anymore? What if it also includes being free enough to spend your Friday night at a Michelin star restaurant with your best friend or at a nursing home cafeteria with, with uh, widows and have an equally positive, joyful experience either way? What if it includes a simple word that cuts to the hardest heart, prayers that carry the weight of the air himself and a joy that cannot be stolen? What if it includes the terminally ill being wheeled from Woodhull Hospital down Graham Avenue and into the doors of this church because they've heard that there's people here that actually have the audacity to pray like there's a God who heals and occasionally it works? I mean, you gotta admit that does sound much, much more fun. That is the dream that put light into the eyes of Jesus, even on the night of his execution. That is everything that he has might be mine and yours as well. And the great tragedy among many of the church in our time is that the Holy Spirit has become a familiar stranger. I mean, if you just get the story Jesus was telling, then you also have to be confronted by the fact of how much it must break the heart of God that the spirit of God has become unknown, feared, and divisive. Because that's the reputation of the spirit in the church of our time, unknown. Back to that survey I referenced before, 58% of Christians in the West aren't even aware that the spirit is a being to know and be known by. So people go in and out of churches. They spend their whole lives trying to live out the teachings of Jesus, totally unaware of how close he's really come to them. And the reason that so many of us would reverse the deal, that we trade back what Jesus accomplished for us if we could, is because the Holy Spirit has become a stranger. And some of you sit here, and if you're being brutally honest, you just think, man, you know, if I'm to be real with you, I'm disappointed. Like if this, if my experience so far is everything Jesus was accomplishing through life, death, and resurrection, I'm disappointed. These are the words of Billy Graham. Everywhere I go, I find that God's people lack something. They are hungry for something. Their Christian experience is not all they had expected, and they often have recurring defeat in their lives. Christians today are hungry for spiritual fulfillment. The desperate need of the nation today is that men and women who profess Jesus be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, that's a not particularly charismatic, theologically very sound gospel preacher who's traveled the globe and seen the church in every variety and form, and his takeaway was this, the church is longing for the Holy Spirit. The church needs the Holy Spirit. Unknown. And feared, there's a summary phrase that's repeated by all the gospel writers. They constantly say, all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the order there is very important. Do and then teach. So Jesus was giving people an experience first and then he was giving them an explanation for that experience second. And that is crucial because in a post-enlightenment, highly intellectual, fashionably cynical city like New York, we are very suspicious of experience. So look, teach me everything up front and then once I've logically verified everything, maybe, maybe I'll be open to the experience. And the only trouble with that way of thinking is the entire Bible. <laughs> that the scriptures are basically one person after another after another who had an experience with God and then is trying to sort out the implications. And so the New Testament church that we're always romanticizing and trying to get back to, all they had was experience. The early church was made up of illiterate peasants meeting secretly in homes without a completed copy of the New Testament. The scriptures that are based on their lives are the Holy Spirit-saturated historic accounts of ordinary people experiencing God in every variety, and then on the other side of that experience, sorting out the implications. And what God taught them in the midst of an outpouring then became the bedrock for future generations to build on. So if we want to be led by the Spirit, we've got to become comfortable with the God who often works first and then teaches second. Simon Ponsonby, who's an Oxford scholar, an intellectual who teaches for a living, wrote these words. I purposefully emphasize the word experience and will seek now to show you from scripture the importance of experience. A non-experiential religion is suspect for it fails to deal with the totality of our being. And if hunger and curiosity won't open you up to more of God, maybe honest discontent will. This is the psychiatrist Kurt Thompson. Despite the interest in spirituality in much of the West and North America in particular, our overall experience of God's power and life-giving vitality is often limited. We often see life in Jesus as being more about survival than about grace, adventure, and genuine, concrete, life-giving change. We fear the experience of God. And then the Holy Spirit's become divisive. So we've got um, this absurdly large leather-bound Bible that we read the teaching text out of each, each week. This is um, called a book. It has pages made of paper. Used, people used to use these for reading before the iPhone. So we read the teaching text out of this thing every week, and, and, and it's fascinating because the Bible is called the Holy Bible. That's what you'll see on the cover uh, of basically every Bible today. It will say, Holy Bible. And the reason that's fascinating is because the phrase Holy Bible appears exactly zero times in the Holy Bible. Now, this isn't particularly true all around the world, but at least in this country, there is a pretty stark division between what you'd call Bible churches and what you might call Holy Spirit churches. There, there are certain churches that preach the Bible with excellence and intellect and thoughtfulness, but the experience of the Holy Spirit is varying degrees of absent. And then there's other churches that major on the Holy Spirit but then diminish the Bible into basically a script for pep talks. 
And so when I say we're going to talk to you today about the Holy Spirit, I am painfully aware that suddenly a room like this splinters into different groups and that some of you immediately become nervously and squirm and a guard goes up because that's not a part of my previous experience and if I haven't experienced it, then it must be worth being suspicious of. Or because that's all too familiar to me and I've been in a toxic, manipulative spiritual environment and so anything that even hints at that, I've got to guard immediately up against. And then there's others of us that think like, okay, yeah, finally, TGC's getting charismatic. You've been moving too slow for me, Tyler, but you're catching up now. And, and I'm saying neither of those things. Don't hear me say either of those things. I'm not trying to advocate for either kind of church. I want you to see that the spirit that Jesus gave as the bonding agent to the church has become the dividing agent of the church. And that must break the heart of Jesus. How jealous must he be for his church? Because the kingdom of God is not an either or kind of kingdom, it's a both and kind of kingdom. The Bible and the Holy Spirit. Teach, or thinking and feeling, teaching and experiencing the gospel and signs and wonders, exegeting the text and speaking words of prophecy. What a moment for us to live in a city like this one as a church filled with a lot of young people and to together say emphatically yes to the Holy Bible. Yes to bringing all the complexity of my life experience thoughtfully and intellectually to emotionally wrestle with God's person revealed throughout history. And yes to the Holy Spirit. Yes to the intimate presence and supernatural power of a God who would be both with us and even in us. So everything that I've just given you today is an introduction. It's an introduction to a teaching series that's gonna stretch over the next seven weeks. We've titled it, When the Advocate Comes, because on Jesus' final night, in this conversation with his disciples, he says this phrase, when the advocate comes, five different times, and then he follows that with an explanation of what it will be like when his spirit fills his people. We've paired each of those references with one of the five biblical metaphors for the spirit, wind, breath, dove, fire, water, and we're going to trace those throughout the Bible and unpack what Jesus meant when he spoke of what's become a familiar stranger. I don't wanna get you all wound up about the power of the spirit. I don't want to, to force you into some kind of experience with the spirit. I want to introduce you to the person of the Holy Spirit. So here's the one idea for today. The Holy Spirit is a person to know, not a force to capture. And you cannot know a person by learning about them. I could read a biography of your life, I could interview all of your friends and family, but at the end of it, I would not know you any better. If we actually sat face to face, you would just be a slightly more familiar stranger. I'd have way more information, but you'd still be a stranger. And so if you're going to know the Holy Spirit to experience what Jesus was talking about on his final night, that requires the risk of relationship. It means the risk of interacting with his spirit. It means learning to pray uh, in the power of the spirit, learning to enjoy the presence of the spirit, learning to tune your ear to the voice of God, learning to keep in step with the spirit in the language of scripture. It is so much more personal than listening to someone else teach. And it is so much better. So to know the Holy Spirit in my experience comes through three things, intimacy, holiness, and faith. And so I just wanna land with, with these three invitations. First, intimacy. 
the Holy Spirit before anything else is this. God has gone to such great lengths to be close to you. Living with you, dying your death, giving you his life, and then filling you with his breath. God has gone to such great lengths to be close to you. John Wimber, a pastor who led a Holy Spirit revival across the Western world in the 80s, wrote these words. When I speak of hearing God's voice, I mean developing a practice of communion with the Father. Do you have a practice of communion with the Father? Do you make space regularly at the beginning of the day or at intervals in the middle of your day or at the very end of your day to be with God? And I know that's oxymoronic because God's everywhere all the time, but to tune your attention to God. Do you have a practice of communion with God? Intimacy, and then there's holiness. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, usually the first thing people think of is these wild experiences and powerful stories. And so I think it's worth remembering that we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And there's got to be at least a few people in this room thinking, look, all this is great, man. But I can't really dream about giving sight to the blind when I can't stop sleeping with my boyfriend. Or I've got a pornography habit that I just cannot kick. Or, or I, I cannot sit with my friend group without the subtle undercurrent of jealousy. So you guys go ahead and start healing the sick. I'm going to sit back and try to figure out my stuff. Jesus did not lower the standard of holiness. Sin actually does not mix with God's presence. It's the one thing in our lives that, that crowds out room for God. But Jesus did redefine the terms of holiness. So I just want to go back to Kierkegaard's definition for sin that I gave you last week. It's not the breaking of moral rules, but it's not wanting to be oneself before God. Not wanting to be really, fully, truly seen and known by God. And here's Jesus' definition of holiness. Not moral perfection, but confession. Allowing God to see you, dragging every bit of yourself, especially the part that you're trying to hide and get all sorted out in the dark, into God's presence. The most common name for your spiritual enemy used in the Bible is accuser. And the name Jesus gives to his spirit is advocate. It's the opposite. So if you're thinking, yeah, I'll get all this spirit stuff sorted out when I've finished fixing this problem in the dark, you've got it backwards. You should know that the very spirit you're resisting is advocating for you in the heavenly realms right now, is pleading your case of innocence before the Father as we speak. So here's your part, just allow yourself to be seen. Just bring your whole self, especially the parts of you that you think are unpresentable, into the presence of God. That is holiness. And then finally, there's faith. Scripture talks about um, both quenching and fanning into flame the power of the Spirit. And both of those are connected to faith. So when the Spirit speaks to us, it's often like this subtle prompting or a deep sense of knowing I should act in this way. It's just this deep sense of I should speak to that person. I should invite that coworker out to lunch. I should bless that family financially. I, I should pray for her. And, and it's almost always a prompting towards something that scares you or makes you feel unbelievably awkward. 
But when God speaks, it's always because he wants to act. And so when in faith we move through our discomfort to say yes to the prompting of the spirit, something happens. You fan into flame the spirit that is within you. So if you begin to say yes to those risks in faith to the spirit of God, be warned, you'll start hearing God's voice more clearly and more frequently. But the opposite of that is also true. If you resist the promptings of the spirit, you'll find that the voice of God tends to get quieter and less frequent in your life. And so if God's voice is not a regular part of your day, I would encourage you just to ask yourself this question, when is the last time I allowed God to push me outside of my comfort zone? And if the answer is rarely or never, then you probably shouldn't expect a lot of the voice of God in your life because you've been quenching the flame of his spirit within you. But you can fan it back into a raging fire. And just by saying yes to little promptings of faith, my friend Pete defines faith like this. The length of time between God speaking and our acting. That's good, right? That helps. So when we walk in faith, we befriend the Holy Spirit because we walk in step with that spirit. I wonder what kind of stories would come out of the next seven weeks of this church if we just decided by acting in faith, I'm gonna close the gap between God's voice and my action. I'm gonna fan into flame the spirit is within me. I wonder what kind of unbelievable, I can't even conceive of that being possible right now kind of stories would come out of simple actions of moving through our discomfort. Last night, I ended the night with like small tears streaming down my cheeks because I watched the Coldplay documentary, that new one on Amazon. Have you watched it? <laughs> I'm just like, I honestly, Chris Martin, you've got me again. You lost me. I'm back. But <clears throat> here's the reason I bring that up. The drummer from Coldplay didn't know how to play the drums, his college roommate did, and Coldplay didn't have a drummer. He set up the drum kit for his roommate, his roommate didn't show, and he was like, why don't I try it? Then he became the drummer for Coldplay. He didn't know how to play the drums. He was not gifted, he was not qualified, he just happened to be available. That's all God is looking for. If you want a drum for Coldplay, just say yes to the spirit. I'm just, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I, I can't guarantee that it will work out that way, but I can't guarantee that it won't. <laughs> I gotta land the plane, we're running out of time. Sincerely, God does not work with the gifted and the qualified. He works with the available. If you feel unqualified and not good enough to inherit unbelievable stories of faith, then just ask yourself this question, am I available? Will I say yes to the still small voice of the spirit and move through my discomfort and faith? That is all God needs. He's built a movement on people who are available. So we've created this really simple resource. It's on the teaching page of our website. It's, it's called Keep and Step with the Spirit. It's gonna take you through these three movements, intimacy, holiness, and faith. It can be used daily if you want. That's how it's designed to be used. You could do this in 10 or 15 minutes. But I would just say two things to you about this resource. Number one, make it a part of your life this spring. Because these sermons on their own are not going to change your relationship with God. Daily, actually taking the risk of relationship will change your relationship with God. This has never been about poetry, it's always been about practice. And I would also just say, know the Spirit as you can, not as you can't. 
So if spending daily time with God, doing this seven days a week, would be really intense for you, then here's something you never thought you'd hear a pastor say. Don't do that. Just don't do that. If, if just changing your Saturday morning routine to spend 15 minutes with God would be intense for you, then go for that. This shouldn't feel like training for a marathon. It should feel like being more intentional about a friendship. So do this as you can, not as you can't, but I would say engage in it. And we're gonna start right now just by inviting a deeper friendship with God into our lives. So why don't we stand together and we'll respond. Let me just pray over you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, we welcome your communion with us. And I, I, it's funny, I have a sense, Lord, that, um, that there are many of us that are available, that that thing that wasn't actually written down has, has been what has landed in many hearts. And so, let's just take a moment to be quiet before God to make ourselves available to him, even right now. Just to push out of your mind whatever's distracting you, maybe what you've got going on immediately after this, or... whatever else may be distracting in this moment, and just, if you're willing to, just say, God, I'm here, and I'm available. Mm -hmm.